Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second part of our story about Edwin Forrest, perhaps the most well-known stage actor to ever come out of the city of Philadelphia. In the last episode, we detailed his early years, starting from his childhood through his struggles to break into the acting world in his teens, his journey to the American West, and his return home in triumph. And we told the story about how Forrest, by the age of 21, achieved theatrical stardom and financial success. So, what's left? Quite a lot, because we've only just reached the first few chapters of most standard biographies of Edwin Forrest's life. He lived 45 more years, after all. He performed on American and British stages thousands of times in dozens of leading roles. He would be a central figure in one of the most famous urban upheavals, the Astor Place Riots of 1849, and he was at the middle of the greatest celebrity divorce trial of the 19th century, perhaps of all time. But, as the focus of this podcast is Philadelphia theater history, we're going to narrow down the story by sticking to the parts of his life and career that pertain to Philadelphia. In fact, let's set the terms of the next two episodes now. In this episode, we will discuss Forrest's sponsorship of an annual playwriting contest, how it built his standard repertoire, and how it fit into the literary and theatrical life of Philadelphia in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. Next time, we're going to skip right over the Astor Place riots and his contentious divorce, because that has been covered extensively elsewhere, though parts of it did take place here. On the whole, these events don't necessarily pertain to Philadelphia. We'll look instead at how, after that crisis, he returned to the city and made it his home once again, and how his legacy continued to shape institutions and his reputation for years to come. left Forrest at about the age of 23, during his first blush of success. Both in New York and Philadelphia, he was now a genuine star and could command his own fate. Soon he was demanding and receiving a guaranteed $200 per show, as well as 50% of the gross box office receipts. Wherever he went, that was his standard contract. Theater managers didn't like it, but no one knew how to refuse him because his presence on the bill could almost guarantee a full house. And they needed full houses, desperately. Philadelphia's own theatrical scene at this point was in a confused, disrupted, and financially perilous state, one that it would not really escape for almost 20 years. Three theaters, the Walnut Street Theater, the Chestnut Street Theater, and the newcomer, the Arch Street Theater, a few blocks away from each other and each located, unsurprisingly, on their namesake streets, would vie for audiences throughout this period, playing a never-ending game of beggar your neighbor. If one theater had a star name or a big attraction, the other two would do anything to poach their audiences away, even if it bankrupted them. And often it did just that. Theater managers would cycle madly through each house, often lasting for only part of a season before moving on to another one. 
Warren and Wood, the former leaders of the Philadelphia scene, were among these managers, but were eventually reduced to becoming stock company members, once again gratefully accepting charity benefit performances staged to keep them from penury. Philadelphia's regular corps of resident actors were seldom paid, or at least infrequently paid, as managers were forced to guarantee visiting stars a huge portion of the box office. And worst of all, the city's theaters had lost their primacy in America, though Philadelphia retained a respectable cultural stature in the American theater world, along with Boston and New Orleans. From now on, no other American city could really compete with New York. It's not that exciting plays stopped being produced in Philadelphia. Not at all. If you read through the numerous histories and memoirs of the period, they are full of accounts of plays and actors and lively anecdotes. Audiences flocked to see many plays and stayed away from many others. Great actors came through town. Charles Keene, Fanny Kemble, Charles Matthews, Madame Vestris. Some were lauded, some were scorned. Some new American performers began to make their own reputations. Circuses, variety acts, operas, ballets, melodramas, hippodramas, all could be seen regularly. Philadelphians, like all Americans, continued to expect and to receive theatrical entertainment. And, just as they had always done, Philadelphia's clergy even kept denouncing the wickedness of the stage. Edwin Forrest's own mother and sisters found themselves compelled to listen to a sermon one day at Grace Church as they sat in a pew that Edwin had paid for, a sermon which denounced the wickedness of the stage and all actors. Other changes were coming, however. Industrial development boomed in the city, and immigrants flocked there to man the factories and the workshops. It was a fractious and contentious era, politically and socially. Riots and civil disturbances were increasingly common. Pennsylvania Hall, that temple of free discussion, would be burned down by the anti-abolition riots in 1838. And in 1844, the nativist riots caused militia troops to engage in all-out warfare in the streets with anti-Catholic mobs. Through all this, however, Edwin Forrest continued to make Philadelphia his base of operations. From 1827 through 1836, he shared a home with his mother and sisters on North 10th Street, continually lavishing it with new furnishings and silverware. He toured throughout the country, playing to mostly packed houses wherever he went. He was the family's main support, especially after March 4, 1834, when his brother, William, who was then a co-manager of the Art Street Theatre, died suddenly and painfully of a bowel obstruction, despite the best efforts of the eminent Philadelphia physician, Dr. McClellan, to save him. Edwin was unable to say goodbye to his brother, however, because he had left on a boat to New Orleans that very day. As he traveled around the country, Edwin Forrest's repertoire of roles at this point were still largely Shakespearean and classical-style tragedies. Othello, Macbeth, Lear, Richard III, Hamlet. A favorite role was Damon in Damon and Pythias, the story of two friends so devoted that they would gladly volunteer to die in the other's place. He also liked doing William Tell and Virginius by the English writer and actor Sheridan Knowles. 
Forrest could also do Iago in Shakespeare's Othello, and indeed many times switched off the roles of Iago and Othello with other actors during a run, including Thomas Cooper, who once had advised the 14-year-old Forrest to learn his craft and not fixate on stardom. Now Cooper, nearing the end of his long career, was happy to hitch his fading name to Forrest's rising one. Forrest could fill New York's enormous Bowery Theater, after all, with his huge fan base. He was a hot property, as we would say today. And like all leading men of his day, Edwin Forrest was looking to expand his repertoire. Because again, the standard practice of the day was not to develop each play slowly as an ensemble, as we do today, but for actors to arrive at a theater with their portfolio of roles at easy command. A stock company of actors would fill in the supporting company. Actors usually supplied their own costumes, and the theater managers would arrange for scenery and musicians. Except for the very newest plays, one or two rehearsals was all that was considered necessary. Forrest was looking for new tragedies. Comedy, remember, was not his brand. He was a tragedian, and in keeping with his political and philosophical temperament, he preferred plays that had stories about brave and muscular male characters standing up to invaders and tyrants. Sure, there might be a minor love story in the plot somewhere, but he never played the lover himself. His preferred character type was a mature man with intensely loyal male friendships who was defending his wife, his children, and his country. Just as rigorously as he continued to train and build his athletic body, he continued to study and to expand his craft. As one of the first native-born American actors to ever achieve prominence, he felt a responsibility to encourage American drama. He was a Jacksonian Democrat through and through, and like many other Americans of his day, he felt strongly that Fifty years after the American Revolution was over, it was time to end the dominance of British high culture in many areas of American life, including the theater. Forrest was already regularly performing in two plays, Brutus and also Therese, by the American actor and author John Howard Payne. But Payne's work had already been widely produced by British theaters and British actors. Forrest wanted something that would be identified with him alone. An avid and voracious reader, Forrest discovered that the Washington Irving novel, The Last of the Mohicans, and also the Mordecai Noah play entitled She Would Be a Soldier, were thrilling stories, and that, importantly, their depiction of American Indians, Native Americans, as we would say today, but American Indians, as they would say then, reminded him of his youthful sojourn in the Louisiana backwoods with his Choctaw companion, Pushmataha. He saw the possibility of an aboriginal character as a vigorous and physical characterization with a free spirit and a defiant independence. In 1829, Forrest issued a public invitation for American writers to submit plays to a contest that he would sponsor for a $500 prize, with the stipulation that the principal character of this play be, quote, an aboriginal of this country, close quotes. The winner of the contest was John Augustus Stone, 
an actor from Massachusetts who dramatized the story of King Philip's War, the bloody conflict between the Puritan settlers and the Native Americans from the late 17th century in Massachusetts. It was called Metamora, or The Last of the Wampanoags. Now, Stone had acted with Forrest, including in productions of She Would Be a Soldier, so he knew exactly how the leading character should be written to win the star actor's attention. A natural man, with a free spirit and a beautiful body, one who sleeps amidst the roar of the waterfall and wakes to defend both his family and his land. Oh, there was a subplot involving a young white Puritan woman, improbably named Oceana, who is pursued by a villain named Fitz Arnold, but most of the action involved Metamora, rescuing Oceana from a wolf, defending his village against the invading white man, declaring all-out war, finding his young son dead after being defeated in battle, and finally killing his own wife, Namioki, rather than have her become a victim of the white man's predation. At the end, Metamora was gunned down, and he fell next to the body of his wife and child as the curtain descended. Forrest himself worked closely with Stone on revising and shaping the piece to show off all his strengths as an actor, including a famous speech in which Metamora defies and curses his white oppressors. White man, beware. The mighty spirits of the Wampanoag race are hovering o'er our heads. They stretch out their shadowy arms to me and ask for vengeance. They shall have it. The wrath of the wronged Indian shall fall upon you like a cataract that dashes the uprooted oak down the mighty chasms. The war whoop shall start you from your dreams at night, and the red hatchet gleam in the blaze of your burning dwellings till the lands you have Stolen, grown under your feet no more. Everyone who ever saw the piece recalled that Forrest's entire body transformed to play the character of Metamora. He became lithe, self-contained, full of supple energy and mystery. The vituperative speech brought down the house every time as he threw a hatchet into the ground and stalked off the stage. Metamora debuted at the Park Theatre in New York City on December 15, 1829, to wild acclaim. Its success was everything Forrest had hoped for. Stone received the prize money and the receipts of the third night, and then after that the play became Forrest's exclusive property. It would remain in his repertoire for the next 35 years. On January 22, 1830, he brought it to the Art Street Theater in Philadelphia, and the reception was similarly overwhelming. During Forrest's lifetime, in fact, it was a rare year that the play was not performed at least once in Philadelphia. Many times, both there and elsewhere, he would make sure that delegations of actual Native Americans were in the audience, and supposedly their whoops were sometimes added to those of the actors on stage. Although, more often than not, they just kept their thoughts about the play to themselves. Despite its fierce main character and its denunciation of white invasion, more lately, 
Many scholars have pointed out that such stage Indian portrayals as Metamora actually helped white audiences psychologically to ease the way for the removal of Native Americans from their lands in the East and then the West, too. Most Americans were content to see Metamora as a hero of a bygone day and did not trouble themselves about their own rights to the land that they currently inhabited. The Indian way of life was doomed, after all. It's so very sad, wasn't it? But it made such a great play. The success of his first playwriting contest inspired Edwin Forrest to form a committee of eminent literary men as judges and to make it a regular event. Forrest read hundreds of submissions personally, looking for another text that could also be a successful hit for him, although he dropped the stipulation that it be about Aboriginal Americans. The winners of the contest, it turned out, were always male, primarily wrote plays on classical subjects in Shakespearean-style verse, and they were always, for some reason, Philadelphians, though all of this may call into question whether the playwriting contest was really much of a contest. It did seem that Philadelphia was finally developing its own dramatic literary scene. John Augustus Stone even moved to Philadelphia and won the contest again in 1833 with a play entitled The Ancient Britain, though this play failed in its sole performance at the Art Street Theatre and was never repeated. Beset by money worries and personal problems, Stone fell into a deep depression the following year and committed suicide by jumping into the Schuylkill River. Forrest paid for his funeral and a memorial headstone at a Philadelphia cemetery. A similar lack of success, though fortunately not suicide, met the 1830 winner, Richard Penn Smith, the son of the provost of the University of Pennsylvania, for his play Caius Marius, set in Republican Rome. Nor was any production ever staged for the next winner, Pelopidas, or The Fall of the Polemarchs, about the liberation of ancient Thebes from the oppressive Spartans. It was by another Penn graduate, a young physician named Robert Montgomery Byrd. Byrd was to be a significant person in Forrest's life. Byrd was born in Delaware in 1806, but his family moved to Philadelphia when he was four after the death of his father. He graduated from Germantown Academy and the University of Pennsylvania. Trained to become a physician, he quickly gave up practicing medicine, and was instead determined to have a literary career. He set out a careful plan. He wanted to write multiple biographies, multiple novels, and plays, comedies, melodramas, and tragedies. After his first tragedy, Pelopidas, won Forrest's contest, he became close friends with the actor, and Byrd quickly sent him another play, entitled The Gladiator. It was a historic play about the slave rebellion led by Spartacus during the late days of the Roman Republic. Forrest loved it and proposed that they work on the play more together. Byrd and Forrest would do so as they traveled together throughout the United States, stopping often on their journeys to view Niagara Falls, which was one of Forrest's favorite natural wonders. In the version they finally came up with, the play perfectly suited Forrest's public image as a performer, once again strong, independent, 
and defiant, but with a text that was decidedly populist and with an appeal to the white working class. After all, was his story not their story? Wrote an admiring newspaper editor in the Dayton, Ohio Journal, quote, his success is indeed an incentive to the young men of this country who are struggling with adverse circumstances and is typical of our free, go-ahead, and universal Yankee nation. Despite Forrest's famous political support of Democratic President Andrew Jackson and for American territorial expansion in general, in The Gladiator, there is, in fact, a surprising critique of American imperial ambition and manifest destiny. In the text, we find this passage when Spartacus, the rebellious slave from Thrace, first sees the magnificent city of Rome. His friend Brachius asks him, And what thinkest thou, Spartacus, now that thou hast seen it? replies Spartacus, That if Romans had not been fiends, Rome had never been great. Whence came this greatness but from the miseries of subjugated nations? There is not a palace upon these hills that cost not the lives of a thousand innocent men. There is no deed of greatness ye can boast, but it was achieved upon the ruin of a nation. There is no joy you can feel, but its ingredients are blood and tears. But the clearest theme in the play was the struggle of the common man against tyranny. And this was exactly what Forrest was looking for. And he made sure it was highlighted. He knew his audiences. After all, when the play was first staged in September of 1831, the reception at New York's Park Theater was again enthusiastic in the climactic scene at the end of Act Two, which takes place in the gladiatorial arena. Spartacus is told by the aristocrat Crassus that if he kills his next opponent, he and his family will be freed. But his next opponent, as it turns out, is his long-lost brother, Pharsarius. Instead of fighting, the two brothers instantly confer and plot a rebellion. Freedom for gladiators! Death to the Roman fiends that make their mirth out of the groans of bleeding misery! Oh, slaves, it is your hour to kill! Kill and spare not for wrath and liberty, freedom for bondmen, freedom and revenge. There were shouts and trumpets as the gladiators and their guards rushed to fight each other. Forrest, as Spartacus, would strip to the waist, draw his sword, and pose downstage center. His muscled torso gleamed in the light, and his mighty legs stood like two huge pillars. The curtain fell, and the audience invariably roared its approval. Now, I know what you are thinking. Did nobody see the parallels between the call to liberate ancient Roman slaves and the necessity to end the American institution of chattel slavery? Did Bird and Forrest really have to go all the way back to ancient Rome for examples of tyranny and despotism and the fight for liberty? 
you feel like saying, if you're looking for slave rebellions, fellas, you didn't have to go that far. What about Nat Turner to St. Louverture? Well, suffice it to say that like almost all white Americans of their day, no, they did not make that connection at all. Their conceptions of the struggle for liberty against tyranny pretty much began and ended with the struggle of white men. Although Forrest, for his entire life, rejected the company and the politics of the social elite in America, he never made common cause with the situation of black people in his own country. He would have been appalled, even at the suggestion, frankly. Well, the gladiator, along with Metamora, would become the backbone of Forrest's standard repertoire. Later, he would also add to this repertoire the play Jack Cade, based on the revolt of English peasants in the 15th century, which is also portrayed in Shakespeare's play Henry VI, Part Two. Although the play Jack Cade had actually been written for a rival actor by yet another Philadelphian, Robert T. Conrad, when that actor failed in it, Forrest snapped the script up and made it his own. In Jack Cade, again, he played a strong and independent rebel against aristocrats who falls at the end of the play but dies defiantly, fiercely defending his rights. Quote, Until our chains are molten in the glow of kindled spirits, for I seek not power, I know no glory save the godlike joy of making the bondman free. Some people, at least, saw the problem. The poet Walt Whitman, reviewing the gladiator in his newspaper, The Brooklyn Eagle, in 1846, saw that Forrest was tapping into a deep vein of American political emotion, but it was missing a huge opportunity to give it direction, despite what was sitting right there if you took the lines of the play literally. This play is full of abolitionism as an egg is of meat, Whitman declared. But, like most of Forrest's plays, though it explicitly appealed to the American common man, it was not actually telling American stories. Indeed, except for Metamora, none of Forrest's repertoire of plays took place in America or had American characters in them. Give us American plays, too, Whitman begged Forrest. Matter fitted to American opinions and institutions. But Forrest and his audiences were never to make that essential connection. In fact, the only ones that ever seemed to see how his repertoire of plays were relevant to current American politics was an audience in Augusta, Georgia, in 1831. White Georgians, many currently engaged in dispossessing and banishing their Cherokee neighbors from the state, were indignant at his performance of Metamora's roaring assertion of Indian rights. The Georgians rose with yells of scorn and indignation against Forrest from the audience. A local judge declared in the newspaper, Any actor who could utter such scathing language with such vehemence must have the whole matter at heart. Forrest believed in that damn Indian speech, and it is an insult to the whole community. The next night, no one showed up to the theater in Augusta to see Edwin Forrest, and the rest of the run was canceled. 
But on the whole, that was a rare failure to please the crowd for Edwin Forrest. His plays, Metamora, The Gladiator, and Jack Cade, along with the rest of his repertoire, were performed in almost every city in America, from California to Maine. They were performed over and over again at Philadelphia's theaters. Almost every year, he would bring them for a run of several weeks at either the Walnut, the Chestnut, or the Arch. Jack Cade was especially popular in Philadelphia, and that play comprised one quarter of his total appearances in the city between 1841 and 1856. It is estimated that Forrest earned the majority of his money over the course of his entire lifetime from those three plays that he had commissioned in his contest. Remember, after paying the initial prize money to the playwrights, he considered his financial obligation to them over. He owned the play. Although Robert Montgomery Byrd provided him with two more scripts, Ola Russa and The Broker of Bogota, both set in America, finally, but in South America, they were not as lucrative and were rarely performed. Certainly they were not lucrative for Byrd, who felt that Forrest had promised him even further royalties, and the two men had a falling out and never spoke again. Forrest never even published the texts and tightly held the scripts in his own control. When U.S. copyright law over plays was finally established, he registered them in his own name. They were his plays, after all, weren't they? He paid for them, he made them famous, he felt. And indeed, they were never to have much of a theatrical life after Forrest was done with them, though by all accounts, they were absolutely thrilling theatrical experiences in their day. Looking at the texts now, they seem like stodgy relics of a bygone era, their language mannered and stilted, their plots unperformable. Although Edwin Forrest had intended to spark and inspire a birth of American dramatic literature, springing from his home city of Philadelphia, his prize-winning plays were to prove a dead end in literary terms. As it turned out, it was not to be any gentleman from Philadelphia, but a lady from Brunswick, Maine, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was finally to write directly about the themes of slavery and injustice in America, and to bring them to life unauthorized stage adaptations of her 1852 anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, would have literally hundreds of productions in the years leading up to the Civil War on American stages. That novel and those plays did more to move people's hearts and actually to make the bondman free than Edwin Forrest's plays ever would. Well, that's enough for today. We'll continue the story with part three of The Forest of Philadelphia next time. I'm Peter Schmitz, and the sound and the music are by Christopher Mark Colucci. For extra information about this episode, please visit our website, www.aithpodcast.com. There's a blog post there with lots of images from the life of Edwin Forrest, more insights and explanations, and a bibliography of our sources for this episode. Thanks for coming along on another adventure in theater history, Philadelphia. (laughs) 